show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello and welcome to the Home Pub. Uh, not the virtual pub this week. For some drinks, trivia, and social history with absolutely no tasting notes, I'm Tim, and I'm joined in my flat by my drinking buddy, Larry. Um, what are we serving today? We, I'll give you a clue. <laughs> Champagne. <sighs> shall, we, shall I uh, do the honours? Shall I pop the cork? Yeah. I'm a bit nervous. I'm going to move up. I'm not going to aim it at you. Don't worry. I have stats on this. <laughs> oh my God. Really? Yeah. Mm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you looked terrified of that. Oh. I'm quite experienced at uh, popping corks. I know. <laughs> that was a good job. Not okay. a drop spent. Nope. Absolutely not. I will not spend my drops on you. Um, see if we can do ASMR. Hope you enjoyed that because I did. Um, <laughs> cheers. Cheers. Oh. Right. Um. This is episode sixty-nine, dude. No way. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that why you've got the champagne out? Uh, partly, and also it's our last episode before Christmas. Mm-hmm. So celebrations all round. Thought champagne was the most appropriate. Yes. For such a milestone. Um. I'm actually going to start with five fun facts. And we're going to toast every one of them to get us in the mood. Okay, cool. Yes. <laughs> so this is going to need to be refilled very shortly. Uh, number one, mm-hmm. there are about 49 million bubbles in a typical bottle of champagne. And a standard size glass emits 30 bubbles every second. Mm. The first glass of champagne has the most bubbles, meaning the first glass will also get you feeling drunk the fastest. Yes. Cheers! Cheers. Mm, mm. I'm just going to expand on that fact before I go on to the next one uh, about alcohol absorption. So no one knows for sure, but there's one leading hypothesis that the carbon dioxide gas rushes the alcohol from the stomach into the small intestine. So alcohol primarily gets into the blood by seeping through the lining of the small intestine. And the little alcohol molecule is also absorbed through the stomach, but more slowly. And it can even start breaking down in the stomach, which deactivates it. So some studies dating back to the 1950s found that carbon dioxide gas actually accelerates the movement of food and liquids from the stomach into the small intestine. But even this connection um, has been quite tough to replicate in studies, and so remains up for debate. So although it has been objectively tested that the first glass of champagne does get you drunker faster than the rest of them. The effect only lasts for about half an hour and then it levels out, but we're not entirely sure why it happens. Oh, I like that. Right? Yeah. So all those people who are like, champagne gets me giddy, that's why. <laughs> it just gets you drunker faster, but then it levels out again. All right, fact number two. Champagne has three times more carbonation than beer, the pressure in a champagne bottle is about three times the amount of pressure of car tyres. When popped, a champagne cork can reach a velocity of 24.8 miles per hour. Because of this, you're more likely to die from a champagne-related incident than from a venomous spider bite, and nearly a third of champagne deaths occur at weddings. No way. Cheers! Oh, cheers! <laughs> Imagine that happening at your wedding. Mm-hmm something to remember wouldn't it um for, for fact number three mm-hmm. for a long time champagne was seen as dangerous because bottles had a tendency to explode in the 19th century champagne makers wore metal masks to protect their faces when handling bottles and eventually stronger glass bottles and metal clasped closures made the stuff more stable 
So cheers to metal clasps. <laughs> We're really scraping the bottom now. Aren't we? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Fact number four. France has the largest champagne market, of course. Um, the French consume 162.5 million bottles every year, or about 52% of the entire world production of champagne. Cheers! Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And... I'm trying to take smaller sips. <laughs> nope, that's not the idea of this. <laughs> and number five... About 28,000 bottles of champagne are served at Wimbledon every year. The UK is actually high on the list of champagne consumption. It ranks fourth place with 0.45 litres per person, behind only Switzerland, Belgium and France. Winston Churchill was one of the biggest champagne drinkers on record. Between 1908 and 1965, he drank an estimated 42,000 bottles. Uh, Paul Roger even made him a special one pint bottle that was served to him every day at precisely 11am. Cheers to that. (laughs) Cheers (laughs) to that. (laughs) Mm. So there we go, that was to get us to our first um, extra fizzy drunken glass of uh, wine. You okay, hun? (laughs) Nope. Clearly it's already gone to my head. (laughs) What I meant to say was, that gets us through our first glass of champagne, which gets us tipsy quicker. But that failed to come out. Um, Right, so that I can get the chance to refill our glasses, I'm going to hand over to you. Um, But before I do, because I know you're going to do a section on why is it so expensive. Yes. uh, I do have some info to take us into that. The most expensive bottle of wine cost... 2.07 2.07 million dollars. Uh, it was designed by Alexander Amosu and Swarovski, handcrafted from 18 carat solid gold with a deep cut 19 carat white diamond at its center. It is mostly expensive because of the bottle, <laughs> as opposed to the quality of champagne that they made. Uh, only a few were ever made, making it rare and valuable collector's edition. But as I say, it's because of the bottle, not the contents, yeah. really. Tell me more. Yeah, so why is it so expensive? Mm. Champagne. Um, I think it's pretty much common knowledge that um, it's to do with the region, because obviously champagne can only come from the Champagne region, as we all know. Um, So a little bit about the region. It's twice the size of San Francisco, which when you say that, it sounds quite big. Mm. But then when you think about how massive the champagne industry is and how many bottles people need, I mean, need. Need is the word. Um, yeah, if you think about how popular it is, there's only so many grapes that can be grown in that region. So, yeah, it's it's pricey. There's only so many grapes you can grow. Uh, and not to mention the real estate as well. Apparently, some of the real estate and land in the Champagne region of France is the most expensive in Europe. So, yeah, it starts off with the region. Next, why is Champagne so expensive? The process of making it. Um, it's time consuming. Um, and of course, the more time it takes to create your batch of champagne, it means that there's more labor that's going into it, more time for the vineyard to see profit from kind of the time that the grapes are harvested through to actually making the champagne. So yeah, the process about the method. Um, a primary fermenting process that creates the wine before it goes into the bottle, that's where you start. And then a secondary fermenting process happens in the bottle when a mixture of yeast and sugar is added. But the really time-consuming stuff is where all of that has happened already and the yeasts, the dead yeasts, have to be removed. So we've talked about this previously. It's a process called riddling. Yes, riddle me this. Riddle me this. Uh, Which is essentially where the bottles are very slowly turned upside down which brings all of those dead yeasts to the neck, those necks are frozen, a temporary cap is removed, and pressure shoots that block of dead yeast out like a big zit. Ooh, lovely. Mm. This has got a nice name, it's disgorgement. Um, And the leftover space that remains is filled with liquor d'expedition. It's a process called dosage, which we've also talked about as well. Mm Um, But unlike traditional wine in the champagne process, this can take years, not like just a quick turnaround job so that's why it is expensive because it takes a very long time for the uh disgorgement and riddling and dosage to be done so 
They need the cash flow, you know. Gotta charge the big bucks when it takes that long. Uh, another reason why champagne is expensive is the weather. Uh, the Champagne region is relatively cold, which can make it quite hard to grow grapes, um, which again means more effort from the people working there and growing the grapes. Uh, but it also means that a full harvest of grapes rarely happens. They lose a lot of grapes, so it's even more scarce. So that's why it's pricey. An obvious one, uh, another reason why it's expensive, the vintage. Some years are better than others. Some vineyards don't bottle straight away, some leave them sit in a cellar for decades, if not longer, they age them for a long time. Um, some also have a prestige cuvee, I've never been uh, rich enough to try it basically, but uh, <laughs> it's kind of, you know, you'll have a good year, a good vintage, but they have a prestige cuvee which is basically the best grapes that they could find from that already very good harvest. It's like the cream of the crop. So if you ever get offered a bottle or a glass of that, jump at the chance. Speaking of grapes, um, so there's no champagne grape per se. Uh, the only requirement for a drink to be champagne is that the grapes are grown in that region and that there's carbonation present. Uh, the most common grapes used are actually Chardonnay and Pinot Noir which is why you get different flavours, which takes me on to the next reason why champagne is so expensive. Mm -hmm. Flavour. There's a distinct flavour to it. There's a high level of acid as well as a delicate flavour from the grapes that have to do with the weather and the overall terroir, or soil composition. Uh, so it's very distinct to uh, its region and it tastes expensive. Um, a reason you won't like brands Sure. You pay for your brand, whether it's Dom Perignon, Cristal, Bolly, Bollinger. Uh, do you have a fave? No, no, I don't. I don't probably drink enough of it to have a fave. Mm. Um, but yeah, they've each got their own flavour. They've obviously used different grapes. It has its own way of fermenting as well, but they all go through the same process. Uh, and finally... The last reason why champagne is expensive, as if I haven't given you enough, <laughs> um, the aging process. So as I mentioned, some people will kind of pop it in cellars for decades or more, which gives it a nice rich flavour. Um, but the minimum amount of time that you can kind of let the champagne sit before it can be released is 15 months. So it's quite a long time really, which is again why they need the monies. So yeah, all of the above, lots of reasons. I didn't realise that it was rare to get a full harvest of grapes in the Champagne region. That was mm. the biggest eye-opener for me in that bit of research. And now I feel very lucky to be drinking champagne with you. We didn't say, I mean, cheers to that again. Yeah, cheers. cheers. Um, <laughs> we didn't say we are drinking real champagne. Um, we didn't mention the brand. Mm. So. It's uh, Moulin by Jean-Philippe, and it is a Brut Champagne. Um, obviously, it's real champagne, so I don't need to say where it comes from. <laughs> <laughs> it comes from champagne, everyone. Does it say what grapes? Um, nope. <laughs> cool. Next. Oh, no, it does. Oh. Tell a lie. It's 50-50 Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. There we go. Absolutely classic. Mm, with such basic... Yeah, um, I'm going to tell you about um, um, some origins. I'm going to tell you about Dom Perignon. Okay. Um, anyone wondering about the fabulous female innovators of Champagne, like Madame's Bollinger and Pomeroy, can go to our Mummy Juice episode, because we mm. talked about that there, about their innovations, you know, riddling, storing things in caves for ageing and taking advantage of the weather, and also improving things like workers' rights. So that's a whole story in and of itself. What we learned, in a nutshell, was that... Um, <laughs> I remember. Yeah. What do you remember from the lesson, uh, the main I, lesson? I've got to kill my husband, and then I get rich. Yeah. Champagne. Yeah. They all got really successful after <laughs> their husbands died when they were young and they took over the business and did what they wanted with it and then they just became amazing innovators. So there's a lesson there. Um, <laughs> so we've already talked about the, the women previously, so I'm going to say talk about Don Perignon and a bit about the origins. Uh, so first of all, the Romans were the first known inhabitants to plant vineyards in the Champagne region. The name Champagne comes from the Latin Campania 
and referred to the similarities between the rolling hills of the French province and also the Italian countryside of Campania, located south of Rome. Uh, being Roman, of course, they planted vineyards wherever they went <laughs> and made wine. Uh, the local variety of grapes there happened to be Pinot Noir, mostly, uh, which at the time would have produced a pinkish wine, but not sparkling at that point. The oldest recorded sparkling wine is Blanquette de Limoux, which was apparently invented by Benedictine monks in the Abbey of Saint-Hilaire near Carcassonne in 1531. They achieved this by bottling the wine before the initial fermentation had ended. Dom Perignon very much has a reputation as the pioneer or even creator of champagne, so I'm going to talk about him for a bit and then come back to that. Okay. Uh, Dom Perignon, 1638 to 1715, was a monk and cellar master at the Benedictine Abbey in Hautevillier. He did pioneer a number of winemaking techniques around 1670. He's renowned for being the first to blend grapes in such a way as to improve the quality of wines, balance one element with another in order to make a better whole, and deal with a number of their imperfections. Perfecting the art of producing clear white wines from black grapes by clever manipulation of the presses, enhancing the tendency of champagne wines to retain their natural sugar in order to naturally induce that secondary fermentation in the spring, and being a master of deciding when to bottle these wines in order to capture the bubble. He was also said to introduce corks instead of wood, which were fastened to bottles with hemp string soaked in oil in order to keep the wines fresh and sparkling, and used thicker glass in order to strengthen the bottles, which, as I said, were prone to explode at the time, which is why people used to wear masks when they were working with them. But the development of sparkling wines as the uh, main style of production in Champagne occurred progressively thereafter in the 19th century. So that was more than a century after Don Perignon's death that it became more of a thing. Uh, in 1935, 300 bottles of a 1926 vintage precursor to Don Perignon were sold to a company called Simon Brothers & Co. They imported Moet into the UK. And they gave two bottles to each of their 150 best customers to commemorate their centenary. And while those bottles were almost identical to the subsequent Don Perignon releases, they didn't display the Don Perignon name at the time rather champagne specially shipped for Simon Brothers & Co's centenary. And then the wine got immediate attention in the marketplace. A hundred boxes of their 1921 vintage were shipped to the US shortly thereafter. And this time they displayed the Dom Perignon name. So that's the first time we actually get sort of marketed Dom Perignon champagne is over to the US in the 1920s. Um, until the 1943 vintage, Dom Perignon was produced from regular vintage Moet and Chandon Champagne that was then transferred to the special 18th century style bottles after extended cellaring. So it was effectively a release of a Moet and Chandon vintage champagne in a different bottle. <laughs> from the 1947 vintage, Dom Perignon has been produced separately from the start. So really, it only goes back to 1947 as mm -hmm. we know it today. Uh, Dom Perignon is always a vintage champagne, meaning that all grapes used to make the wine were harvested in the same year. Uh, the wine is not made in what they call weak years, so when they consider that the general quality of the harvest is considered too low, and the earliest market release of a vintage is usually after 8 to 10 years for the standard champagne with longer maturation times of special editions. In other words, it's very fancy. Um, from 1921 to 2009, Dom Perignon Champagne has produced 43 vintages. So of that, it's sort of like every other year, more yeah. or less, uh, they're able to bottle. Um, Dom Perignon is always an assemblage of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay grapes, mm -hmm. as we said. Um, although the final composition does change um, every vintage, so at times it's 50-50, um, sometimes it goes up to 60% Chardonnay or 60% Pinot Noir. It's only once gone over that in 1970 when it was 65% Chardonnay. So that's kind of quick history of the origins and Dom Perignon, but I'm going to do some myth busting. Okay, I'm ready. About the legends of Dommy P. Myth busting. 
So the quote attributed to Perignon is, come quickly, I am tasting the stars. Have you ever heard that? No, Supposedly when he created champagne, he said, come quickly, I'm tasting the stars. I like Everyone's it like, there. Oh. Of course you do, because it's... Bullshit. Marketing bullshit. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the first appearance of that quote appears to have been in a print advertisement in the late 19th century. Mm. Um, so a major um, proponent of the misconceptions surrounding Don Perignon came from one of his successors at the Abbey of Oakville, uh, Dom Grussard who in 1821 gave an account of Don Perignon inventing champagne, among other exaggerated tales about the Abbey, in order to garner historical importance and prestige for the church. So funnily enough, it, it is marketing bullshit, but it was primarily marketing bullshit for the church, first of all, rather than the champagne. Mm -hmm. um, Grussard's myth um, achieved this prestige for the church, but it also then helped to commercialise champagne at the turn of the 20th century. So the syndicat du commerce uh, used the myth to promote champagne and the region, producing a pamphlet called Le Vin de Champagne in 1896 that celebrated Perignon as the inventor of champagne by following ancient traditions. <laughs> Whenever something says ancient traditions, <laughs> that should raise alarms. Uh, the myth served to protect champagne made in Marne as the original sparkling wine and dismiss any other wines as imitators. Uh, the myth also helped distance champagne from its associations with the aristocratic decadence as well, though, and transform it into a, um, a drink made from a monk's labour and persistence. So it did a weird thing. In a way, it brought it down, and mm -hmm. it's like, it's not just for aristocrats, mm -hmm. but it also said, but it's better than any other sparkling wine. Yeah. But this was very much a marketing decision. <laughs> <laughs> um, the myths about Perignon as well, being the first to use corks and being able to name the precise vineyard by tasting a single grape, likely also originated from Grussard's account. So it's true that prior to blending, he would taste the grapes without knowing the source of the vineyard to avoid influencing his perceptions, which also um, meant that references to his blind tasting of wine, people thought that Don Perignon was blind for ages as well, he wasn't. Um, so uh, yeah, so it's not that he was able to distinguish where what vineyard it came from. It's actually completely the opposite. He didn't want it to influence his decisions to which one tasted better. Um, also contrary to popular belief, Don Perignon did not introduce blending to champagne wines, but instead specifically the method of blending the grapes prior to them going to the press. So rather than adding two after they've been pressed. Um, now it gets even more offensive for the French because I'm going to talk about British influence. Oh God. Um, during the 17th century, English glassmakers used coal-fueled ovens and produced stronger, more durable glass bottles than the wood-fired French glass. And the English also rediscovered the use of cork stoppers that were previously used by the Romans but forgotten for centuries after kind of the fall of their Western Roman Empire. Uh, during the cold winters of the Champagne region, temperatures would drop so low that the fermentation process was um, prematurely halted, which meant that some of the residual sugar and dormant yeast was still in there. Then the wine was shipped to and bottled in England, and the fermentation process would restart when the warmer spring weather kicked in, and the cork-stoppered wine would begin to build pressure from the building carbon dioxide gas, and when it was opened it would be bubbly. So the English were actually among the first who saw the tendency of champagne to sparkle as actually a desirable trait. Um, and they also wanted to understand why. Why did it bubble? So in 1662, which is six years before Dom Perignon joined the winery, the English scientist Christopher Merritt presented a paper detailing how the presence of sugar in wine led to it becoming sparkling and that nearly any wine could be made to sparkle by adding sugar to a wine before bottling it. So this is one of the first known accounts of understanding the process of sparkling wine and suggests that the British merchants were producing sparkling champagne even before the French Champenois were mm. making it deliberately. Controversial! <laughs> <laughs> also associated with the British were the changing tastes of sweetness in the champagne. So in the 19th century, champagne was noticeably sweeter than the champagnes of today. The trend towards drier champagnes began when Perrier Jouet decided not to sweeten their 1846 vintage before shipping it to London. 
and that gave the designation of Brut Champagne, which we are drinking, yes. and was created for the British specifically in 1876. Mm. Um, in 2009, a bottle of the 1825 Perrier Jouet Champagne was opened at a ceremony oh. attended by 12 of the world's top wine tasters. Nice. What would you give to be a fly, honestly? Yeah. Um, this bottle was officially recognised by the Guinness World Records as the oldest bottle of champagne in the world. The contents were found to be drinkable, mm. with notes of truffles and caramel in the taste, oh. and there are now only two other bottles from the 1825 vintage. And is that what you gave me for Christmas? That is absolutely not what I've given you for Christmas. <laughs> um, in July 2010, 168 bottles were found on board a shipwreck in the Baltic Sea. Initial analyses said that there were at least two types of bottle from the two different houses, Verve Clicquot in Reims and the now defunct Champagne House Jugler. The shipwreck was dated between 1800 and 1830, so the bottles discovered may predate the 1825 Perrier Jouet. We don't know, but chances are it did. Um, when the experts were replacing the old corks with new ones, they discovered there were also bottles from a third house, which was Hydeseek. The bottle's contents are supposedly in very good condition, and the auction price is set for forty to £70,000. Um, the story then continues. In April 2015, nearly five years after the bottles were first found, researchers found the chemical composition of the 170-year-old champagne was very similar to the composition of modern-day champagne. But there was much more sugar in it, and it was also less alcoholic than modern-day champagne. It also contained high concentrations of minerals such as iron, copper, and table salt than modern-day champagne does. Mm. Um, and there, there, are, there were a couple of other bottles that they couldn't identify, so there may have been a fourth brand in there as well, they weren't sure. Uh, what do you think? Would you like to crack open a 170-year-old bottle of wine? Absolutely. Yeah? Chin it. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts on how we should store and open that 170-year-old bottle of wine? Uh, I do, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I hope it's been stored well, because uh, I've read into it. Um, particularly unopened bottles and how they should be stored. Um, the big question is how long are you going to store it for? Like, I was thinking more along the lines of me and it's not going to last long, but... <laughs> you are not going to last long, that's right. Not um, Certainly not 170 years anyway. <laughs> I, I meant the champagne's not going to last long in the house. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, unopened bottles of champagne. Um, so let's start with if they're going to last a month or less. Let's be realistic. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so it's fine to store them upright if um, you're going to have them for less than a month. Uh, but it's important that you store them away from any bright sunlight or even artificial light. Um, you don't want to mess it up. So keep them away from bright or artificial light. Um, and they must be kept above freezing but below room temperature. So think about the conditions you've got in your house and put them there. <laughs> More than a month, so I these ones. <laughs> uh, lay your bottles horizontally on a shelf or a rack. It's pretty sexy. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, if stored upright, you run the risk of the cork drying out and it being a pain in the neck to open. Uh, for the temperature between 50 to 59 degrees Fahrenheit and again away from sunlight, bright or artificial light. Um, so sunlight alters the internal temperature of the champagne which can change the chemical makeup and ultimately the taste. Um, so yeah, if you haven't got a wine cellar, you know, we have an old or a wine fridge. <laughs> uh, a dark cupboard will do, um, but yeah, just make sure that you're not you've not got any light and if it's in a cupboard that you use all the time and you're opening it um, put a dark cloth over the champagne keep it safe um, regular fridge is probably the worst place you can store it because that's constantly being opened and that light is coming on the artificial light mm -hmm. uh, the temperatures up and down so do not put it in your regular fridge um, the only time you do put it in the fridge is when you want to drink it um, so it's recommended that you cool champagne slowly. Um, it says around four hours in the fridge gradually to slow it down. Um, 
If you do, however, need to chill it quicker, you can put it in the ice bucket for 10 to 25 minutes. Never put it in the freezer. Mm. It kills the bubbles. Um, the bubbles? It kills the bubbles. And it I gave so many good facts about the bubbles. <laughs> well, it kills those bubbles. It chills it too quickly. And um, if your champagne is insufficiently cooled, it will fizz like crazy when you open it as well. Mm-hmm. So often when you see people opening Prosecco as well, they'll say, oh, I don't know why I didn't shake it. It's because it's been yeah. shut in a freezer or cooled quickly or not cooled. Um so the maximum amount of time that you can store an unopened bottle of champagne if it's not a vintage three to four years if it is a vintage five to ten years so get drinking everyone mm-hmm. <laughs> i remember this from our aging episode as well mm. we went through all the different sort of studies and things on how to successfully age booze and what we found was in 95 percent of cases it's better to drink it straight away, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. Unless you really know what you're doing, yeah. just crack it open. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think it's not to say it's not... It's, it'll still taste nice and be drinkable, but I think it's like it's be prime better. in those mm-hmm. times, which is why I do wonder sometimes when you see people paying crazy amounts of money for, like, 20-year-old champagne. It's like, oh, okay, that's not a deal then, because mm. <laughs> should have drank it 10 years ago. Um... Opening champagne. Yes, please. Uh, there's quite a few different methods, uh, but as I mentioned when I was speaking about it last, it's not cheap. So you need to take special care and attention when pouring your uh, opening your champagne. But at the same time, same time, it's fun, you know. Yeah, I mean, too late now. Like I've already, <laughs> I've already opened it and I'm topping this up again. So, but yeah, crack on. But opening it is fun and it's part of the ritual as well of kind of serving champagne and enjoying champagne. It's nice to open it. You get that pop and you get excited when it pops. I'm guilty of doing that. Ooh, I think we did it when you opened it earlier. Yeah. Um, but you know, the fun police and the champagne snobs uh, claim that the proper way to open it is quietly and as unobtrusively as possible. Bore off. When we're all cheering at that pop, they are frowning upon it. <laughs> <laughs> They're not judging us though. I'll tell you why they are. Um, when you open it with that big pop that's often not kind of controlled, let's say, um, it triggers like a drop in pressure. And again, it's at the expense of the bubbles. Mm-hmm. So you have that pop with a pressure drop, um, those bubbles that have been years and years in the making, you lose lots of them needlessly. Secondly, it causes a loss of wine that can be quite significant. Um, if the bottle has been shaken um, or ins- insufficiently chilled, as I just said, it'll fizz up, you lose a lot of it. Um, and last but not least, as you said right at the start of the podcast, it's quite dangerous. Mm. <laughs> I also have some stats. Um, the pressure inside a champagne bottle, as you said, is the sim- similar to car tyres. Uh, so that pressure can launch a cork at 13 metres per second, which is fast enough to hit your eye from one metre in less than one tenth of a second, which is actually quicker than you can like blink into mm-hmm. this. So you'll have an eye out if you're not careful. But, sod being careful, let's talk about Sabrage. <laughs> well, yeah, and I just wanted to to clarify for the listeners that although it had a good pop when I opened it, it did not fizz over, I did not spill a drop, and I did not aim at anyone's face. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's true. It is true, it is true, it is true. Um, but yeah, Sabrage, while we're on safety first. Um, we've all seen a video, a fail video, somewhere of somebody messing it up. And I absolutely <laughs> love the Schadenfreude as well because it's usually someone who um, did not deserve to have a sword in their hand, let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we have talked about it before, but I'm just going to give a little kind of overview of how to do it properly. Okay. Should you still be of the idea that you can do it yourself? Yeah. Uh, hold the bottle at the base in one hand. With the other hand, touch the sabre to the shoulder of the bottle, mm-hmm. turning the blunt edge towards the cork. Then, strike the lip of the bottle sharply, aiming for the glass ring just below the cork. That's the weakest point. And if you do that properly, it'll be a nice sever, single blow, clean cut, no glass in your hands or on the floor and mm-hmm. champagne everywhere. 
So try that at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We absolutely try this at home. Yeah. Get your fanciest steak knife. <laughs> um, but the safest way is obviously the the way that you you pretty much did it earlier. The easing the cork out slowly and as gently as possible. I did get a kind of full recipe per se of how to open it the fun police way, which I will share with you now. Okay. Uh, you will need a chilled bottle of champagne, mm-hmm. an empty glass, mm-hmm. not not plural, notice, <laughs> <laughs> an empty glass, uh, a clean napkin, but also in case it all goes tits up, grab a corkscrew and some pincers as well. Okay. You may need to operate. Um, so, right, you've got all of that. Hold the body of the bottle, not the neck. If you hold it by the neck, you'll warm up that little bit of champagne at the top. Yep. First of all, wipe the bottle dry with your napkin. Slowly turn the bottle upside down once or twice. Okay. This ensures an even temperature throughout. Right. You don't want that first sip of the one that gets you giddy to Mm -hmm. not be a... I did not do that. That is a thing I did not do. Mm. So yeah, turn the bottle upside down once or twice very slowly just to get it all nice and cool. Then you present the bottle as you would a newborn child. Mm-hmm. Um, <sighs> oh, at, at arm's length with a grimace. <laughs> oh, take it. Um, then you untwist the metal loop on the wire muzzle. Mm-hmm. Carefully separate the metal strands that hold the cage in place but do not remove. Mm-hmm. With the cork still partially held in place by the muzzle, give it a tiny twist just to judge the fit of the cork. Generally speaking, from there, the tighter the cork, the shorter the time it's spent in the bottle. So you can never rule out the risk that the cork's going to come flying out when you remove it. Um, this often happens with very old bottles with the like peg sort of like corks. Mm-hmm. So for a tight fitting cork, once the strands of the muzzle have been separated, remove it together with the foil cap using your finger as a hook to pull the loop at the base of the muzzle was holding down the cork with your thumb as a precaution. Sure. (laughs) It's fiddly. Uh, For a loose-fitting cork, leave the wire cage in place until you're ready to release the muzzle, foil cap and cork in one go. So, whether you've got a tight or a loose-fitting cork, (laughs) proceed as follows. Hold the bottle in one hand at a 30 to 45 degree angle. This will help with extraction and prevent the champagne from overflowing. Be careful to point the bottle away from you and others. Did you don't do want that. an eye out. Did do that. <laughs> Meanwhile, keep the thumb of your other hand on top of the cork with your forefinger wrapped around the cork itself and the other fingers holding the bottleneck. Mm-hmm. Slowly turn the bottle. If necessary, rock in the cork gently with your thumb and forefinger to get it moving. Use your other three fingers around the bottleneck and wait for a small sigh of escaping gas that will tell you the corks are releasing. If the cork won't budge, you can turn the bottle by holding it at the base. And if that doesn't work, you can then use your pliers to loosen the cork and remove it by hand. Next, wipe the bottleneck, either with a napkin you used earlier or with the miroir. That's the surface of cork that comes into contact with the champagne. Mm -hmm. Keep the bottle at an angle, giving it a slight twist to prevent dripping. You then pour a taste for the host, filling the glass to around one third full to allow a proper appreciation of the champagne, starting with its temperature. When catering for a larger crowd, check the wine yourself before serving. (laughs) They've they've, they've written this in bold on the website that I found this. This is the only way to open a bottle of champagne. (laughs) Wow, we guess we'd better put this one back or like... You know, in the time the time that that has taken, that preparatory opening, I've already consumed my first glass and exactly. I'm giddy. Exactly. I'd be sitting there like, get on with it. <laughs> um, so the only time you'll need the corkscrew, you'll notice I didn't mention the corkscrew there, it's when the cork breaks. Some older corks or dry corks can snap. Uh, in that case, wrap the napkin around the bottleneck in case it does. Whack your corkscrew in. Get it out. Mm-hmm. Um... Once you've done that, start drinking, and if you're on your own, because it was an empty glass, plural, not plural, um, you can store it in a fridge for up to five days, if covered with a champagne sealer or a hinged bubble stopper. 
Mm-hmm. There are other useless ways that people insist on storing it in the fridge open that don't work. Those are the only two ways. Champagne sealer or a hinged bubble stopper. I do have champagne sealer uh, over there to the left of you. Um, I've never used it. <laughs> <laughs> it's never come up. Of course. It's never, it's never come up. So, uh, in a nutshell, um, tease, tease the tip, but firmly grasp and twist the base. The body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, you were saying like there are other kind of way, other myths about yes. how to social. Have you heard about like the teaspoon? Yes, I tip? have. My cousin insists on it, and I've told her before that it's bullshit. Is shall it, I? Are you going to tell me if it is honest? Shall I give you the actual facts Ooh, behind, please. like behind this, please behind do. whether it works or not? Okay. So, I found this study. These, these researchers used three strategies to assess the impact of bubble conservation on the wine: the change in pressure the loss of weight and sensory analysis. So after opening, the wine was decanted, leaving 500 milliliters in one set and 250 milliliters in the second set. The wines were then stored at um, at 12 degrees with four methods to conserve the bubbles, open bottle, silver teaspoon, stainless steel teaspoon, cork stopper, um, which uses a hermetic seal, and a crown seal, a metal lid with crimped edges like you get on beer bottles. Mm-hmm. Each approach was pr- performed in triplicates. Um, so this is proper research. <laughs> the researchers then analysed how pressure inside the bottle changed, measured in a unit called atmospheres. One atmosphere is about 101 kilopascals, if that's what you prefer as your measurement. It is, actually. Yeah, I thought so. Uh, the initial bottle pressure was six atmospheres, dropping after decanting to four atmospheres when there was 500 millilitres remaining. With only 250 millilitres remaining, the pressure was just two atmospheres. After 48 hours of storage, the pressure in open bottles and those with the teaspoon inserted in the neck had dropped by a further 50%, mm-hmm. indicating a, sig- a significant loss of bubbles. Clearly, there was no teaspoon effect. <laughs> those sealed with a cork stopper or crown had a pressure drop of only 10%, demonstrating the significant advantage of using a proper closure. Um, the same was also true for the loss of weight. It lost more weight when it was open or with a teaspoon and also tasted not as good, let's put it that way. The <laughs> sensors are like, well, I can tell this has been opened. So um, lots of research to tell you absolutely seal it up. Teaspoons have no effect. You may as well just leave it open then put a teaspoon in. There is no difference. And also... If you have um, 500 millilitres remaining, okay, maybe there's a point in you saving it and putting it in the fridge. If you've got 250 millilitres that is losing its its pressure on bubbles twice as fast, just finish it. Gin it, gin it, gin it. Gin it. Um, the other thing I tried to find out, though, beyond sort of the truth, was where this myth had come from. Yeah. And I cannot find it. It's been around for a long time. I know that. I found articles right through the 20th century about it, but I don't know where it originated. No one seems to know, but it is. this is like a proper urban myth that just mm-hmm. spread and is absolutely useless. <laughs> so there you go. Don't do it. Pointless. Mm. Just chin it. Whether you've got mm. a half bottle or what, just chin it. Yeah. I say. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> like I say, I have the proper tools to actually store it if I need to, but it's never come up. Nah. Um... Do you want to hear a story about Jason Z? Mm, always, yeah. Jay-Z. Um, so a lot of people, his name kept coming up when I was researching Champagne. Um, and a lot of people would go as far as to say that he helped shape Champagne culture. Um, so he, in like kind of late 80s, early 90s, was often seen um, using Champagne in his lyrics, uh, music videos, um, and in an interview, he was kind of asked about it. And he said, oh, it's essentially a way of kind of elevating m- myself, my culture, my brand into another kind of, a- another category of wealth and, and mm-hmm. not, but he was essentially trying to do it in not like a new money kind of way. He was like, I don't want to just go out and buy big gold kind of pieces to wear. I want to show that I've got a bit more taste. So he started drinking champagne. 
uh, and his champagne of choice was Cristal. He used that in a lot of his music videos and as a result, because he was so influential back then, a lot of other rappers were doing it. Um, and the then MD, I think now main man at Cristal, um, was asked in an interview what he thought about it. Um, and he essentially threw some shade on it and it, um, Jay-Z said it was pretty racist. He was like, well, um, there's not a lot I can, I can do about it. I can't stop them buying it. I can't stop them drinking it. He had such a good opportunity to embrace it and use that as mm. kind of brand ambassadors, but instead he just kind of shot himself in the foot. Um, so Jay-Z was like, screw that guy. I'm never drinking Cristal ever again. Mm, quite right. And he didn't. Um, he then started drinking a new champagne, the Armand de Brignac one, the gold bottle with the Ace of Spades on it, yes. known as the Ace of Spades champagne. Yeah. Uh, he then just got a taste for that and was using that in his uh, music videos. He kind of, every time he went to the club, he'd turn up with like literally like suitcases of it. It was his champagne of choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, unsurprisingly, a few years afterwards, he bought 50% of the company. <laughs> so that's now known as Jay-Z's company. Mm-hmm. I think he eventually bought it outright. Um, but more recently, I think it was 2021, he sold 50% to Moe again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's still very vocal in uh, the world of champagne. There was a really nice um, article on, I've got it in front of me, Gentleman's Journal where they had a tour around the cellars of the Jay-Z owned champagne brand Armand de Brignac and it looks so pretty in there it's definitely got that kind of like rock star touch where I'll show you the photos where it's almost it's almost like a kind of treasure trove Um, so it's apparently the deepest cellars in the champagne region they're 30 metres deep and they're just stacked full of those like gold bottles. Well, yeah, it looks like um, a bank vault of gold bullion. Yeah, they've they've lit uh, like uplit the whole cellar with gold lights, and it's just very very special. Mm. Um, and reading that article, it just the extra touches that they don't necessarily need to do. They were saying how the riddling process is still all done by hand. Mm-hmm. and the pewter labels of the ace of spades and um the actual champagne name is all applied by hand it's mm-hmm. you know they don't they don't spare any expense it's very very expensive <laughs> uh, but i yeah i had no idea about jay-z i didn't know he owned half of it and well yeah. i mean i actually i haven't got this in my notes but i i do know this because mm-hmm. i've read the studies on it but i can't tell you whose study it was because i haven't written it down but if the guy from Christophe had done his homework, he would have known that there was quite a big study into the correlation between the types of drinks people consume and the music they listen to. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that people who uh, drink champagne, mm-hmm. um, who, who say that like champagne is one of their favorite drinks, are most likely to listen to hip hop above mm-hmm. any other music, mm-hmm. like across everything, across all cultures. Yeah. So. You know, as you said, like that was a massive missed opportunity in terms of branding because that's your that's most of your um, audience. Mm -hmm. Crazy. It's funny. I um, there's like a more modern day version of it happening now. I remember, I think it was for our vodka episode. I was drinking AU vodka, Mm -hmm. which comes in like a big gold bottle. Yes. Um, and they are essentially doing that now, where all of their brand ambassadors are young upcoming aspirational like grime not hip-hop yeah i guess grime and hip-hop artists mm-hmm. they they're just kind of throwing money at those guys as brand ambassadors and influencers and i think they've done it well because it's au vodka is like affordable but they're creating that kind of aspirational look with yeah. the gold bottles and everyone just wants to be in a club with a bottle of it and yeah it's nice to see it still a thing. Um, going back to your house of open champagne safely, um, <laughs> what's kind of the opposite of that in your head? Like the opposite of uh, delicately and sensibly opening a bottle of champagne? Um, I mean, I'm likely to just drop it on the floor and think, oh, it'll be fine and then open it. <laughs> <laughs> sure, for you, absolute clumsiness. <laughs> For me, when I think what's the opposite of that, I immediately think of the Formula One racing winner's podium (gasps) and how they shake it up and then spray it everywhere. You know what I mean? Yes. 
God. So I thought I'd look into this. Like, why why does it happen? Mm. Um, so the first bottle of champagne to be popped on a Formula One podium was at the 1950 French Grand Prix. Juan Manuel Fangio got awarded a bottle of Moet and Chandon, which had been donated by the winery. But that was just consumed delicately at that point in 1950. It was the first time that champagne became associated with the winner's podium because it was a gift, but they drank it sensibly. It wasn't until 1966 until Joe Siffert would accidentally spray champagne over the crowd. So he won the bottle in the 24-hour Le Mans race, Mm -hmm. which we kind of made reference to in our Beaujolais episode, actually, when we talked about those really long races and how it's how it sort of spawned that cult of Beaujolais Day. Um, So (laughs) I love that this is the first time you've just tried to top up the glasses and it almost went very wrong. After all of your warnings. I say almost, I think I nailed that. (laughs) It it was on the edge. Um, Right, so yes, Joseph in 1966. So um, he, uh, I think it had just been like sitting out a bit too long, so it had warmed up Mm -hmm. and it, popped by itself when he picked it up. So it was a bit of an accident, it it sprayed everywhere. But then the following year, 1967, it perhaps started intentionally as a a tradition of some sort. Well, not maybe not, it wasn't intended to be a tradition, but it was started intentionally. It was Dan Gurney, Uh, I've got a quote. He said, what I did with the champagne was totally spontaneous. I had no idea it would start a tradition. I was beyond caring and just got caught up in the moment. It was one of those once-in-a-lifetime occasions where things turned out perfectly. I thought this hard-fought victory needed something special. Um, so it, basically, he he won, and it wasn't expected that he would win. Mm-hmm. And so he sprayed his teammates with the champagne as a way to kind of share the champagne with them. So it was like it wasn't a, a tradition at that point. Um, with the champagne bottle, actually, uh, once it was empty, he signed it and gave it to uh, a guy called Flip Schalker, who was the photographer for Life magazine. And for 30 years, uh, Flip used the bottle as a lamp uh, until returning it to Gurney after that point, and it stayed with him until he passed away in January 2018. Hmm. Um, In the beginning, and then so that started the tradition, and thereafter everyone was like, that's a great idea, it looks fun, let's do it, (laughs) from 67 onwards. In the beginning, the bottle was a magnum, size which mm-hmm. is one and a half liters of champagne or two standard bottles and that was moet and chandon until 1999 mm-hmm. and it passed through a few wineries after that at the beginning of the 21st century now it's a jeroboam which contains three liters of italian sparkling wine so that's four standard bottles and it comes from ferrari trento so, so much money they just spray in each yeah. other association with F1 with with that Italian sparkling wine now but it's not champagne uh, anymore um yeah I mean how, how do you feel about that when you see people spraying those bottles it does victory? make me sad I just think why can't you do it with something cheap <laughs> well cost of living crisis and all that <laughs> <laughs> like what Lambrini. <laughs> Actually, do you know what? Because because everyone goes to different countries and different cultures, when they go to places where alcohol is forbidden or restricted, like when they do races in Saudi Arabia, for example, mm. they actually have like um, sparkling rose water. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's still probably not that cheap because it is quite fancy, but it's not, they're not spraying booze. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they have to use, um, they have to use non-alcoholic alternatives when they race in the Middle East. And also, they don't do that tradition if there's been an accident or someone died during the race. Those mm-hmm. are the only times they don't do it, but otherwise... I yeah, think until I'd read into, you know, the why is it so expensive stuff, I would have been like, no, oh, yeah, this looks fun. But now I know <laughs> how much time and effort goes into it. It's like, guys, come on. Honestly, any wastage of any kind pays me. If it was just sparkling water, I'd freak out. <laughs> I've got an idea. Mm. Perhaps I can en masse make bottles of my Prosecco for them to spray. <laughs> I have no problems with people <laughs> spraying your Prosecco everywhere. It's not made to be consumed. 
Um, we're kind of at the end of the episode. Have you got anything else, or should we open another bottle and spray it everywhere as our finale? Yeah, I'm not doing that. I, I could just throw this glass over you if you want. <laughs> well, that sounds fun. Uh, so, uh, therefore, because uh, Ellery's going to throw a glass over me, our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to pop nos bouchons et pulvorise notre mousse à votre santé. Are you okay? <laughs> what? <laughs> that. That means pop our corks and spray our foam. Oh. Cheers, everyone. Cheers, everyone. Wherever I may roam, or land or sea or home, you can always hear me sing in this song. Show me the way to go home. Um, first of all, do you feel more drunk than usual? Because I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't feel like I've consumed more alcohol, but this thing about the first glass of champagne, I find absolutely true. It is that thing where, like, you know, when you're a teenager and it's like you're new to drinking, it's mm. like that new drunk. Yeah, giddy. Yeah, I almost nice. go with champagne, it's amazing. <laughs> All right. Uh, secondly, because this is our last episode before Christmas, mm-hmm. I've got a Christmas present for you. I've got one for you. <gasps> <laughs> Can I give mine first? Because it's just there and I haven't wrapped it or anything. Yeah, I'm not... Well, like, mine's kind of wrapped because it came in a nice box. Okay. <laughs> also, like, mine is probably not as good as whatever you've got. <laughs> just a fact. <laughs> um, here's part one. Oh, okay. Shall I open? Mm, please do. Okay. I'll move my glass out the way. We don't want an F1 going on. <laughs> no, no F1. Oh. Gosh. Oh my god, yes. Oh god, is this... No, this isn't the one I had to read out. It's a metal sign for the listeners. <laughs> uh, I am Buckfast. It's a, a poem about Buckfast. I, think I prefer to think of it as affirmations for you to say daily. Affirm yeah. Every morning I'm going to wake up and my mantra is going to be this, and I will read it for you all. I am Buckfast. I am Raj. I am Ooft. I am Purty. I am Council Claret. I am Wreck the Hoose Juice. I am Oot My Chicken. I am Madwit. I am Pingin. I am Fucked Fast. I am Instant Regret. I am purple thunder. I am consumed from the bottle. I am a true heartwarming elixir that brings out a true legend in us all. Aww. And to make that a reality. Oh my gosh. A bottle of Buckfast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It finally happened. Oh Jesus. Our next episode, which we are recording for the purposes of New Year's Day, is going to be themed on hangovers. So I want you to drink that for that episode. Yes. Oh my God. Okay, I will, I promise. (gasps) Not recommended for children or pregnant or breastfeeding women. I think it says all people at the bottom. Only the Welsh and Scottish. <laughs> um, well, this is actually perfect because it sums us up perfectly because you have got me <laughs> mm-hmm. something very on brand for me. Yep. And I've got something very highbrow for you. <laughs> okay. I already feel really guilty oh, because sorry. yours is in a nice wooden box <laughs> and I literally pulled mine out of my backpack. <laughs> okay, so first of all, it's a nice fancy box with um, like that sort of fake hay yes. stuff inside for cushioning. Mm-hmm. <gasps> I'm gonna I'm gonna bypass that and get straight to the bottle. I'm ra- unwrapping it like it's a newborn bunny. <laughs> Heather Mead. Yeah. Cask finished, limited edition, uh, matured in an ex Madeira Pendarin whiskey cask. Yeah. Product of Wales. Wales. I got me some Welsh mead. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's only just been released, so. 
she fancy. Well, she it, should be tasty. It looks delicious, and I think, in fairness, I will also consume this next episode. Yes, please do. So that we've got sort of matching drinks. <laughs> the first is it was bottled August twenty twenty two, batch number one, and it's bottle seventy one. Delightful. Mm. Well, thank you very much. Um, but I think I'm, that sums us up, really. Yeah. You've got the schmancy Heather mead, and I've got a bucky. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. <laughs> well, um, cheers to another year of nonsense, then. Yes. That's the end of episode 69, dude. Giggity. <laughs>